welcome back. I'm Matt. The echoey one is Alex. That's me. In a minute or two, we're going to tell you all about Ed and Lorraine Warren and what really happened during the Devil Made Me Do It case. I haven't gotten to do much dealing with the paranormal on this show, so this one was fun to read through because it made me question a lot of different things. In particular, I've been thinking a lot about when I said a few weeks ago that introductions and call-to-action things on various YouTube channels and podcasts and things like that were kind of annoying, then went on to have those exact things happen in this show. I just kind of packaged them slightly different, sort of, maybe, kind of. And that's not really fair of me to say, is it? I shouldn't talk bad about someone that's actively trying something. I like I like that someone is trying more than I dislike a couple of minor things that I've really only seen a couple times here and there that doesn't amount to any real complaint. What it really boils down to is that I get bored and impatient. It, it feels kind of like how when we were kids and it was time to go from a place, but our parents would always make us stand next to them for another fucking 20 minutes while they continued talking to their friends, but we couldn't go play with ours. Can we just go or what? Like, Why can't I go play with my friend a little longer? We had a game going. We're about to leave in just a second. Hold on. Mom, I'm so bored. Can we please either just leave or go back to Legos with my friend? Then she grabs you by the little hairs on the back of your neck. Somebody just unlocked a core memory with that one. Problem is that moms don't have a feature that quite literally almost everything has nowadays. That thing is a skip button. You could just fast forward like two minutes, Matt. Come on, dude. They're trying to make something work just as much as I'm trying to make something work, but I don't want to make this show work by casting things like that in a negative light because that probably hurts all of us, and that's pretty not cool, so my bad, y'all. Sorry if anybody caught that and was kind of turned off by how it came across. Sometimes you don't catch a mistake until it's too late, but the important thing is that you learn from it and keep going. It's also a big part of this show for me is learning as I go and figuring out how to get better, so let's keep this show going with a story about a horrible demonic possession that I'm probably going to just roast because, full disclosure, I'm a skeptic. And also, this is a comedy show, but this stuff is fun regardless, so away we go to story time! Here's the thing before we get started. I just want to let you all know that I was aware of this movie, but I haven't seen it, and I forgot it existed until I started writing this script. This is the true story of the case that that movie was based on. What movie am I talking about? Read the episode title, you're an adult. There isn't really any reason that I haven't watched it. I just don't seem to watch a ton of movies or TV anymore for some reason. We're up in Connecticut this time though. So going off a little bit from last week, if it's possible that Bigfoot's involved with a missing persons case, it's certainly possible that I'm not the only person that either hasn't seen that movie, Go Easy On Me Horror Junkies, or is otherwise unfamiliar with the case. Look, all right, I gotta level with you. We can be honest with each other. We're all friends here. Um. I didn't plan on doing this story today. This fucking demon made me do it, alright? We just have to get through it today, and then he said he'll leave us alone. I accidentally clicked on this link in one of the forbidden corners of the internet. I know, shame on me. And it turned out to be a PDF file, and now he's bound himself to my goddamn hard drive until this episode's over. What? Why? Dude, they didn't fucking do anything. Alright, he's telling me that first I have to talk about Ed and Lorraine Warren. He's got some beef with them, as we're going to find out, but he needs you to know about them so that what he did to this little boy and grown-ass man will make more sense to you in context. So we're possessed today? Wait, I'm not alone in here? Get the fuck out of here, Satan! Oof. 
Oh, it's not actually Satan, and you just used the wrong name on a demon, so he's pissed off now. Sorry, Alex. I'll try, but you might have to watch out today. Fuck! Well, what is his name? If I knew that, we wouldn't fucking be here, would we? That's the whole thing, right? Take their name for dominion over them or some shit? I don't know. I wasn't even religious before I met this demon a few days ago. Now he's telling me all kinds of crazy shit and Latin and deep voices. Uh, what? Uh, shit. Now I'm in trouble, too. Okay, fine. Here's the breakdown on the Warrens. God, this demon's an asshole. Ed and Lorraine Warren were a pair of self-proclaimed demonologists and paranormal investigators from Connecticut. Well, Ed claimed to be a demonologist, while Lorraine was a clairvoyant and medium of sorts. Probably the two most enthusiastic and renowned people ever in the world of paranormal investigation and demonic whatevers. They met when Ed was about 16 while he was working at a theater while Lorraine and her mother were regulars. They eventually became friends and not too long after, the two were dating. Going steady, real sweet on each other. The old razzle-dazzle, rippy-dippy-doodle, I don't know either, people probably don't say that. Ed was in the Navy, also. This is pretty wild. Ed enlisted in the Navy on his 17th birthday, shipped out. Was there for four months until the ship he was on sank, went back home for 30 days, got married, went back to World War II, won, came back home, had a daughter, enrolled in art school, got good at painting haunted houses, fuck art school, dropped out, and then they did this. Ed had long since become interested in hauntings and other types of paranormal and fringe sciency types of stuff, so together along with Lorraine, they founded an entire society for ghost hunters, the NESPER, which is a strange acronym, but it stands for New England Society for Psychic Research. NESPER. Sounds like whisper, kinda. You should whisper it. NESPER. It's still around, too. Fuck yeah. Seems to be the central hub for anything and everything related to the Warrens or any of the famous cases that they've worked on. Amityville, Haunting in Connecticut, The Perrin Family, The Conjuring, Annabelle, The Other Conjuring, A Werewolf in the UK Somewhere, This Conjuring, it's all there. Nesper. Also hosts an annual Paranormal Con in October, which sounds like just way too much. There's gotta be just a ton of weird misplaced energy floating around in a place like that. And I don't mean spiritual energy. I mean like, you know when you go to a place and it just feels kinda off, like... Or maybe everybody there is on drugs and super chill and calm. I have no idea. I'm probably not going to go regardless. What? Huh? Um, sorry. The demon says I rambled on too long. Nesper. It also uses a wide variety of different people, such as medical doctors, researchers, cops, nurses, college kids, and clergy members in their investigations. There's also been a lot of criticism and I think some healthy skepticism surrounding the two and Nesper for much of their working careers. Steve Novella and Perry DeAngelis interviewed them, and while they were pleasant enough people, Ed and Lorraine, their claims of demons and ghosts were, quote, at best as tellers of meaningless ghost stories and, at worst, dangerous frauds. Novella would go on to say about them, quote, They have a ton of fish stories about evidence that got away. They're not doing good scientific investigation. They have a predetermined conclusion which they adhere to literally and religiously. Alright, this is the part of the field of study where I always get hung up on. I want to believe this stuff. I want to believe that it's possible that these types of things can happen. And I'm not saying you or anybody out there is wrong. If you do believe this stuff, I just haven't personally seen enough solid, testable, verifiable evidence that points to any sort of ghost or demon or cryptid being a real thing, even coming from Nesper. 
That doesn't make me immune from enjoying the field of study or indulging in a bit of fantasy or imagination, though, from time to time. I actually enjoy listening to ghost stories or whatever. In the daytime. But I think my imagination is too active at night, and it kind of weirds me out. I shouldn't even be writing this right now. There's ghosts like two clicks away from me on several different tabs. Yes! God! There's a demon too! I literally can't forget about you until you leave. You're a very unwelcome presence. Oh, I can't wait till you leave. Damn, Alex. He's sitting in my spot! Please help us. Okay, so we've established that Ed and Lorraine are a pair of well-known ghost hunters that have had ties to many different supposed hauntings and possessions throughout the years. Both were born in Bridgeport and died in Monroe, Connecticut. The two were married for 61 years, and after Ed and Lorraine's passing in 2006 and 2019, respectively, their estate, including Nesper, is maintained by their son-in-law, Tony Spira, and daughter, Judy. Okay, that's enough about Ed and Lorraine for now. I'll have some more on them throughout this, but here's what they say actually went down in the house. There is a full interview with them on YouTube about this case, which is where a lot of the information I have came from. This has really nothing to do with anything, but I love how accessible things are nowadays. I was trying to remember what it was like to research things when I was a kid before the internet was a thing. I'd have to go to the library in town and just hope there was something in an encyclopedia or in a book somewhere that I then had to also read, but now we have the answer to literally any question we can possibly think of on a magic rectangle that we keep in our pocket at all times. But sometimes the future is kind of stupid, too, like when an e-reader dies and you have to charge a book, or when people don't use the magic rectangle in their pocket to look up information for free. Fucking Google is free. That's the most amazing thing about it sometimes. Or remember when we were all supposed to stay home from work for forever and then still pay rent somehow? That was stupid for a while. We are now just outside the rental property that was recently purchased by Arnie Johnson and Debbie Glatzel, a young, recently engaged, happy couple. If you've kept up with the show for a while, should be no surprise to you that this begins in July 1980, because of course it does. Why is July such a hotbed for significant shit? There was quite a bit of work to do on the house before they could actually move in, and Arnie was being assisted by Debbie's little brother, David. David is an 11-year-old, and as we all know from almost every movie or anime ever, an 11-year-old is the perfect vessel for a demon or some other entity to possess or inhabit. I made a joke a few weeks ago about a 10-year-old being in charge of something. This is like that, but a thousand times worse. Imagine if you put the little girl from The Exorcist in charge of something. Like in HR. Oh, it says here that you feel like you've been an asset to the company for five years now and you want to race? Cue violet shrieking and projectile vomiting in all directions. Oh my goodness, that is such a generous offer! I think I can finally start saving up for that vacation I've been wanting to take my family on. Thank you so much! Then she lunges over the desk and bashes the guy in the head with a rotary phone, a clear indication that the meeting is concluded. Then later, back at his desk, another co-worker comes up, sees the bump on his head, and says, Oh, you asked for a raise, did you? And the guy looks back at him and says, well, How'd you know? The other guy takes off his hat and shows him this giant golf ball-sized pimple on the bald spot on his head and says, Yeah, they don't really go away, but let me tell you, that extra money, man, it made a huge difference for me and my family. Let's, okay, let's just get back to reality. Arnie was being assisted by the young David prepping up the rental property when David claimed to have seen a, quote, burnt and black-looking old man, who he says pushed him into a waterbed and threatened the family with harm if they moved into the house. 
I love that this whole thing begins with a vague description of an old, burned-up man and morphs itself into what this story is later. But that wasn't the first time that the burned-up old man made an appearance. A few months back, the family had been on a little trip up to New York when they met some interesting individuals. These people were interested in the occult and Satanism, as were David's mother and sister, who were supposedly, quote, fooling around with witchcraft, according to Ed, anyway. After meeting the alleged Satanists, they went with them back to their house to do something, not sure what. This is where David claims to have seen the Beast. Much like in my situation right now, this entity either doesn't have a name or doesn't provide one. Hey, you know, I'm just gonna make up my own name for you, right? It says it doesn't matter what I do, and I can try anything because I can't escape from it. Okay, we'll see. We'll see about that, ass Azel. Oh, he didn't like that at all. Okay, after returning from the satanic snowmobile trip, things are quiet for a little while. It's not until they begin fixing up the house that David's symptoms begin to resurface. At this point, Arnie and Debbie and the rest of the family are plumb out of ideas. As devout Catholics, they had no other ideas but to contact Father Dennis. He was the pastor of St. Joseph's in Brookfield. After working with the boy for several weeks, he became absolutely certain, beyond a shadow of a doubt in his mind, that this little boy was possessed. And at that point, Father Dennis then had nowhere else to go but the already well-known Lawrence. He spoke to them at length about a young boy he was certain was possessed but that he was leery of being involved. He was previously assigned by the bishop to exercise a different home that had a demon infestation that the Warrens also investigated and wanted nothing to do with this one. I just had to deal with this shit like three months ago and now I have another crazy ass possession you want me to exercise? Fuck that. I don't get paid enough for this shit. I'm going to go hang out with my mom in Ireland. But don't worry. You still have my prayers. That's the important thing. So he just dips out and leaves. Says, I'll still pray for you, but I gotta go to Ireland right now and see my mom. I think I pissed something off and it's gonna try to get back at me through my mom. Like, what if he... What if he tries to fuck her? What if the devil tries to fuck my mom? I can't let that happen. I'm a priest. I've got to go. For those of you out of the loop, that's actually the origin of the term, motherfucker. It's a historical biblical phrase that was used only in the most extreme instances of possession and is actually a direct reference to a fear-based demonic retribution. That little piece of biblical history was really interesting, and I was honestly surprised to see so much information on such an obscure topic, especially because none of it's true. What is true, though, is that Father Dennis spoke to the Warrens about what he saw in David. It appeared to Father D that David had a slight learning disability. That wasn't the only thing he noticed, though. There were other bizarre things occurring around the house and within David's orbit, and David's behavioral changes had began to worry him. Ed and Lorraine discussed it amongst themselves for a little while, then decided to contact Dr. Jim Grasso to see if he could be willing to accompany them to the house. I wonder if there's a relation to Thomas Grasso from a few weeks ago. Remember all the chicken-related bits that I made up for that one? That was fun. Don't worry, no chickens in this episode, though. They asked Grasso to join them because he also had a son with a similar problem. They asked if maybe David could be taking some kind of medication that was making him act that way, but no, according to Dr. Grasso, whatever David's case wasn't severe enough to warrant any kind of medication. Therefore, the only logical conclusion we can come to is that this little boy is 100% possessed by a devil. On the night of this visit, Lorraine makes sure to mention several times how hot it is that night and notes that she can also see the steam coming up off the ground. Maybe she did. Maybe she didn't. I don't fucking think so. Here's why. 
it is possible for that to happen. When you see that happening, it's because the road has spent all day absorbing sunlight and moisture particles and getting really hot. Then as the air around the road cools, the water begins to condensate and what we see is visible water vapor or steam. However, I don't think this was the case as that usually happens in cooler temperatures and Lorraine said that it was a hot night. I think she wants us to believe that the air was so hot just from this demon's presence that it was actually evaporating the moisture around it just because of the demon. Another important thing I noticed watching this interview is that both Ed and Lorraine use very, very pointed language that can kind of only lead to a singular conclusion. That conclusion usually being that they, the Warrens, are correct in their assumptions about demons or some other presence being the cause of the problem. Then Lorraine goes on to say it was a weird night and that it all started when Ed tripped while going up the stairs. Oh my god! An old man tripped while going up the stairs? Holy shit, that has to be the work of a devil. I can't think of a single other thing that could possibly cause an old man to trip going up the stairs. It's gotta be a devil. Has to be. No other explanation. And if one old man tripping while going up the stairs isn't enough to convince you there's a demon here, Jim Grasso tripped going up the stairs too after he laughed at Ed. <laughs> hey Ed, there's a step there. <laughs> I'll see you next fall, buddy. <laughs> Get it? Because you had a nice little trip going up the stairs. <laughs> and then he fucking falls down the stairs too. And that demon is thinking, ha! Take that second old man. I am a ruthless motherfucker. I'll inconvenience you so bad if you don't start respecting me. Get the fuck out of here with the demon stairs. I also really hope demons don't sound exactly like me when they talk. Probably wouldn't help them be very frightening. Now that the old men have recovered from their injuries and taken up safe refuge inside the house, they sat around the kitchen table and began discussing the situation. All the adults were talking, and David was kind of just over there doing his own thing, doodling, drawing, whatever it was. Totally normal 11-year-old boy behavior. Except for, he'd be totally normal one second, and then he'd lift his head up from the paper and look at you, and it was, <gasps> SUDDENLY NO LONGER DAVID! That was all from Lorraine, and then Ed takes this as his cue to chime in. They kind of go back and forth at the interview and talk over each other a lot, and they have a, they have a weird energy on the set. Ed claims that David would suddenly become extremely strong, to the point that sometimes it would take four or five men to hold him down. This was a boy that loved his parents dearly, yet he'd begin yelling, ranting, raving, and attacking anybody nearby, including his mother, which broke her nose. This went on for several weeks. Ed and Lorraine would stay with the family, or at least visit them pretty frequently. In their absence, Arnie would take it upon himself to watch over David. He'd be out all day working as a landscaper, and then he'd come home and chill with David for a few hours, until around 11 p.m. Right around then, every night, was when things would start to get weird for David. Arnie also claims to have witnessed much of the same behavior that Ed saw, rolling around, throwing fits and tantrums, shouting obscenities. Ed even saw him levitate one time. I have to say again, no he fucking didn't. Here's another thing Ed said happened that for sure didn't happen. Arnie and Debbie said they slept on the floor next to David to keep an eye on him and to make sure that he's cool throughout the night, make sure he doesn't have a random demon fit or whatever. They said that while they're lying there on the floor, that a green, bone-like hand and arm would come up through the floor and just present itself to them. Like, no, that didn't happen. What are you talking about? No. These two love making wild claims that they can't back up, 
except for what they say in their own words, which is taken as gospel for some reason, Ed also makes the following hard-to-believe claim. According to Ed, David has just built a plastic toy dinosaur. He was playing around with the toys while the adults were busy talking about where to stand for an extra 20 minutes before they actually left. Hey, should we go wait by the door? It's closer to the car. No, still wait in the kitchen all the way on the other side of the house. It's fine. And then there's the dreaded, oh, I almost forgot to show you. This will just take a second. Yep, we all have a memory like that somewhere. By the way, Alex, uh, how's it going in there? You've been pretty quiet. Well, I figured out how to keep his voice separate from ours, so you can't hear him, but he can hear us. Can you see him? Is he upset that I'm calling him mean names? A little bit. He's trying to hide it, but he keeps sighing, so he's clearly upset about something. Alright, well keep it up, buddy. I'm working on something to get us out of this. You hear that, Blackheart? <laughs> Blackheart. More like Black Fart. You smell awful, Black Fart. What did you eat? Actual sulfur and brimstone? Come on, man. This is shared space. We both gotta share the space. Come on. Is there no other food? Did you not see all the other food options in my brain? Did you look at all of them and say, No, that's not it. I'm not doing that. I'm worried about you, Black Fart. Anyway, upon being built, the dinosaur toy suddenly sprung to life began moving all on its own and said, Beware, you are all going to die. In a deep, gruff voice. And I know that sounds like one of my made-up things, but that's actually what Ed said happened. Fucking, come on! There is no way that actually happened. There, no way. Rex and Potato Head and Little Bo Peep and Buzz and Woody aren't secretly plotting to kill us from all inside the toy box. That There's no way that happened. At least I don't think that's what happens. I haven't seen the fourth one. Again, go easy on me movie people. I do have to point out, though, that they did seek psychiatric help, but it was not proven to be very helpful. Whatever doctor they went to told Ed and Lorraine that David was not mentally ill. The only explanation, then? The outward manifestations that occurred in that house, the furniture moving, the loud sounds, the hystericalness of the boy, his crazy strength, speaking in other languages, all of these are textbook stereotype signs of demonic possession. Clearly, there is no other earthly example that could possibly explain what's happening. I don't know about all of you out there, but I can think of several examples of those things being not explained by demons. Things that aren't Fat Ferrello over there. Farfarello was a demon in Dante's Inferno. You get it. By now, we've acquired a crack team of high-ranking religious officials with a vast knowledge of holy rituals and spells and artifacts. It is now September 8th, and it's time for... an exorcism. They bring young David to the convent on this day to gather the forces of God to exorcise the demon from David. Ed was in a little bit later, so when he arrives, David is on the bed already lying in a fetal position. He notices one of the other priests walking just a little bit too close to David and warned him of his habit of punching people. At this moment, David levitates himself up off the bed, which caused everyone around him to jump backwards. He sprinted to the bathroom, locked himself in, and began laughing hysterically. <laughs> You'll never get me in here! This was a hardcore exorcism, too. And according to Ed, this kid was also super fucking strong. David's gigantic, grizzly Adams-esque father couldn't hold David down by himself. Sometimes it would take four or five full-grown men just to keep him kinda still. The whole thing took literally all night and made a humongous mess of everybody involved. People were attacked. Mom and Grandma were almost killed. 
everybody was just getting their asses handed to them by this 11-year-old boy. So far, Ed and Lorraine have made some pretty extraordinary claims about the night in question, talking toy dinosaurs, green glowing ghost hands coming through the floor, levitation. Then they say this. They initially thought it was only one entity called the Beast. Ed tried to bind the spirit during the exorcism, but as the priests were conducting the ritual, it appeared like a kaleidoscope in Ed's eyes that there were actually 43 separate entities or devils trapped inside a single 11-year-old boy. Oh my goodness, 43 devils, whatever shall we do? I thought it was just one, but if you say 43, then it must be 43. Again, everybody just believes everything here, it's fucking crazy. Then Ed does the only thing he can think to do in this moment. There's no way I can confront such an intricate hierarchy of devils all gathered together in one place. Kind of like over in the Spade and Clover Kingdoms. Anime nerds, what's up? So Ed fucking gave up for the night and left. The other priests all worked tirelessly through the night, but the exorcism was unsuccessful. And here's the messed up thing. David was normally a very docile, normal kid, but on this night, he tried to kill his mother and grandma. And that the reason that the exorcism didn't work was that, well, because Mr. The Beast was still back at the house. I guess he's the leader of the 43 large demon squad. The actual exorcist, Father Virgilac, might have had it the worst, though. Not only did he get attacked during the exorcism, but the next morning in his own rectory, he had another traumatizing experience. Well, kinda. Father Virgilac wanted to say mass for his parents that morning over in Norwalk, but didn't really want them to know anything about what just went down the night before, so imagine his surprise after performing a failed exorcism when he awoke the next morning to find his pillow soaked with ethereal blood from another dimension. Gasp! How on heaven and earth did that get there? Couldn't possibly be due to a head injury from the violent exorcism the night before. If he got an open wound on his head that he didn't know about, that would absolutely explain the blood. Your head bleeds a lot. And it's certainly more likely than ethereal blood from another dimension. But no. Ed says this is called an apport through teleportation. And it's supposed to scare the pre- Yeah, that would fucking scare me. But we know devil power! We're smarter than the forces of evil! Fortunately, we can protect ourselves. Thanks to a magic prayer he learned as a kid. Just say this specific order of magic words and you'll have all the protections of heaven. Lorraine just has to chime right back in right then saying that the pillow blood was definitely something otherworldly. It wasn't the own priest's blood, it was teleported there from another dimension. It dematerialized from somewhere else and rematerialized inside Father Virgilac's pillow. Obviously. Duh. I love the... <laughs> Fucking, oh my god. I love that everybody in this story is just so gullible that they believe literally anything anyone tells them is happening. Ethereal ghost blood just appeared on your pillow one day? Sure. Sounds super plausible. <laughs> I also love this part of the interview, too. Tony Spira, son-in-law to the Warrens, current head of Esper, and also the man conducting the interview, then shows a slide of David crying while holding his mother. Lorraine said he would do this, like, all the time. Weird! An 11-year-old boy with a probably undiagnosed mental illness that no one can figure out is feeling strange, acting out, and isn't in control of himself or his emotions? What could the problem be? Yeah, 
You could say it's because he's 11 and doesn't know what emotions are yet, or it could be due to something in his brain mind that just isn't hooked up correctly and not completing the circuit properly. But instead of getting help from a licensed professional, literally everybody in his life, including two total random strangers that showed up to try to help him, just say, It's demons! You have demons inside you! Holy shit! I'd fucking cry and hug my mom all day too! What the fuck? Arnie was of course present for the exorcism and had had enough of this demon's bullshit. He said, leave my little buddy alone, take me instead! Which is what you'd expect to hear someone say in, I don't know, a movie? Or a line in a book? Also, Ed says this was a fatal mistake for Arnie. It wasn't though, he's still alive right now, walking around totally fine. But he did challenge the demon. The demon responsible for an infestation that has already worked its way through the entire holy hierarchy up to and including the Vatican. Well, except for Father Dennis, he left for Ireland to make sure the devil wasn't railing his mother. Arnie, much like the young David, was such a compassionate, low-key guy though. Lorraine says he was a perfect gentleman and completely nonviolent and super respectful, super low-key. But when whatever this thing was that had taken over Arnie's body was in control, it was very scary and terrifying for the entire investigative team. If you were going to have a boy, he'd be the kind of boy you'd want. You know, like what they'd always say about anybody in this situation? Innocent as pie. Wouldn't hurt a fly. Think he's guilty? You got the wrong guy. This is a direct quote from Lorraine. She says, quote, When you challenge the demonic, it doesn't act at that particular given time. It waits until you're the most vulnerable, then it strikes when you least suspect it. A lot of the answers they give are also pretty convenient and self-serving. Another thing I noticed in this interview, just wanted to point that out. But after Arnie challenges the demon, they believe the spirit has migrated onto him instead. So the following day, Ed went back to the house with holy water while the priests stayed behind to clean up the convent, possibly mopping up ghost blood on behalf of the clergy and Nesper. Ed went through the house using what he called religious provocation. He sprinkled holy water on the rocking chair in the living room and it began rocking violently back and forth. Then he heard growling sounds down in the cellar and other poundings like a 2x4 was hitting the floor from underneath. Okay, that one. That one right there. This one bothers me because that one has to be a demon, right? Connecticut, I don't know if you know this, is the only state without any naturally occurring wind, so shit, maybe that was a demon after all. And old noisy pipes and wooden furniture next to open windows are also not really a thing in Connecticut. They take pride in their structures there. It's actually illegal to have noisy pipes or you can't even have an open window there. They will arrest you and then you'll go straight to jail for however much longer you owe on that house. It's wild up there in Connecticut. After he's done with the house, this part's real again, don't worry, Ed goes back over to the convent. He's showing a group of people where the exorcism took place, and there was a man taking a recording. On that recording, he got the same voice that the dinosaur had that said, Why are you here? That has to be a demon, for sure. No way was that just another person at the church talking too loudly. That doesn't happen. People are so well-behaved in groups. Then one day, Arnie decides, you know what? I'm kind of hungry. I've been dealing with this stupid demon for a couple of months now. I'm tired of it. I've earned a reward for all my hard work and suffering. I want some pizza! So Arnie goes to a pizza place with Debbie and her sisters, and also another really important part of this story, Alan Bono. Or Bono. I'm gonna say Bono. Who the hell is that though, Matt? You might be wondering. Alan Bono was Arnie's landlord, the guy he bought the property from. 
The group went back to Bono's house after day drinking and eating pizza at a bar, and they're just all there kind of hanging out. Later, Arnie would say that he has no memory of what happened over the next two hours because he was possessed and the devil made him do it. Yes, that's the actual defense used in court. Luckily, I have access to the magic rectangle in my pocket and can tell you exactly what happened. February 16th, 1981. Arnie calls out of work and went to go hang out with Debbie, her sister Wanda, and Debbie's nine-year-old cousin Mary. Bono was also Debbie's employer at a kennel, and he decided to treat everybody to some pizza and beer at the local bar. After lunch, everybody's pretty drunk from going too hard in the middle of the day, so Arnie and Debbie take Mary and Wanda to go get some pizza. That's fine, I'll drive and only have like eight Budweiser's. They return shortly, but by this point, Bono was shit-hammered and pretty irritated. Who knows why? Alcohol just kind of does that to some people. Debbie tries to de-escalate the situation by asking everyone to leave, but then Bono grabs Mary and refuses to let her go. Arnie is there too, and he's pretty pissed about what's happening and confronts Bono. Bono releases Mary, and she bolts out of there and toward the car. Arnie has began growling at this point, growling like he's a fucking wolf or other animal, and he's just angry and growling. Debbie is standing in between Arnie and Bono while Wanda is trying her damnedest to hold Arnie back. It's no use though. Arnie is way too powerful. No mortal can stop him now. He might as well be Ultra Instinct Shaggy at this point. He's unstoppable. He breaks free from Wanda, gets around Debbie, pulls a five-inch knife out of his pocket, and stabs Bono four to five times in the chest and then runs away. Bono would die a couple hours later from his injuries. The very next day, Lorraine calls the Brookfield Police Department to inform them that Johnson was possessed at the time of the killing. Which, of course launches a worldwide media shitstorm because the Warrens were going to write a book about the experience and a movie detailing all the horrible, gruesome shit. His lawyer, Martin Manella, planned to bring in exorcism specialists from Europe and threaten the priests who oversaw David's exorcism if they didn't cooperate. Sounds like the behavior of the innocent. Cooperate, or else. Trial takes place on October 28th, 1981. How fucking awesome is that for Halloween? The demon murder trial takes place three nights before Halloween? I bet everybody got a great haul that year. Just pillowcases soaked in ethereal blood, stuffed full to the brim with candy at every house in town. The judge isn't having any of this demonic possession nonsense, though. He said no such defense could ever exist in a court of law due to a lack of evidence, and that it's, quote, irrelative and unscientific to allow related testimony. They're trying to prove a negative. You can't prove demons exist, so they could exist, and our experts say they do exist, and they believe we are correct, so you should let them testify on our behalf. No, that's silly. The defense eventually has to back it down to Arnie acting in self-defense, and since the jury was not legally allowed to entertain, quote, demonic possession as a viable explanation for the killing, after 15 hours of deliberation, they find him guilty of manslaughter, and he's sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. We're almost done here. Gotta go back to the Ed and Lorraine interview for just a little bit longer. Bear with me. Ed was adamant during the interview that if the judge let the priest testify, he could have proved possession, but the judge didn't want to be that guy. He didn't want to be the devil let me, the devil made me do it judge guy. Ed said that they had evidence, eyewitness accounts, recordings, photographs, and the priests themselves just waiting to go in and testify, and it would have proved without a doubt that it was diabolical possession. Ed totally believes, absolutely to his core believes, that Arnie was under a demon's control for about two hours when he killed Alan Bono. Again, 
super convenient defense. It's also a really specific amount of time to be possessed. How many other people were possessed for just a couple hours? But we know Arnie very well. Trust us, this was a demon. Arnie was a hardworking guy working all day long, trying to keep David safe all day long. And we might be writing a book about this, but we couldn't possibly stand to benefit from this story in any way. Trust us, it was a demon. It wasn't Arnie. Ed keeps saying throughout this that if the court would have allowed them to enter their evidence into trial, then Arnie would have been acquitted or found not guilty. Here's the thing about evidence, though. There are four basic types, demonstrative, documentary, real, and testimonial. However, it has to be relevant, material, and competent. To be considered relevant, it must have some reasonable tendency to help prove or disprove some fact, which becomes a lot more difficult when it comes to trying to prove a negative, which is impossible. In this case, the Warrens are trying to prove the existence of devils or demons, which is not testable or verifiable and therefore irrelevant. And also eyewitness accounts aren't really that reliable because people have biases and our brains don't remember stuff as well as we like to think they do. This was a crazy ass story all the way through and from the moment Ed and Lorraine were contacted by Father Dennis, I believe they already had the plan for marketing at least halfway thought out already. I know a lot of you out there and a lot of other people get a lot of joy from watching the movies that were inspired by the work they did, and so do I, frankly, the ones I've seen anyway. They're fucking fun movies, I can't deny that, they're fun, I got legitimately spooked. But I also think it's important to not confuse reality with fantasy, which is really hard to do when you're being inundated with content and fantastical ads and amazing advancements in technology every single day and podcast hosts who do multiple different voices in the same thing just to make something different. It gets confusing sometimes, but this is real. We're back to reality again, don't worry. The Warrens held so strongly to their beliefs that instead of living in a shared reality with the rest of us, they chose to substitute in their own with rules they basically wrote the book on and profited heavily off of many people's suffering. Just a couple other things in the interview I wanted to touch on real quick. They both spoke about the events and other ones they've worked on with absolute certainty. This is the way. This is absolutely what, like, look no further, we have the answers. To me, that's kind of a red flag. To me, that says that any deviation from this established reality is wrong. And they basically rejected reality and substituted in their own with lots of convenient explanations and protections for themselves. And the last thing is that you should also try to listen to what they aren't telling you in interviews as well. They make no mention of the relation to the moderator and no mention of how much money they stood to make on their works. At the end of their lives, both of the Warrens are dead now, their estate was worth right around 92 million doll hairs. Alright, I lied. I have one more crazy thing that Ed said. This one is my favorite. He said, When a person is frightened, they throw off psychic energy to the atmosphere, which a negative force uses as fuel to, man itself, to manifest itself more. Ed, what the fuck? No, they don't. <laughs> And I know I'm making a lot of jokes about this, but I want, I want to be able to believe this is possible. I would love to have an explanation for something. Sometimes you really do see stuff that you can't explain. It's more likely that we just saw what we wanted to see or remembered something wrong or were just plain wrong about it. But if any one of these hauntings or ghost stories or cryptid monsters are ever proven to be without a doubt true, verifiably testable and true, then basically that means it's all true. That would be awesome. All this shit's actually real. Ghosts are real. Monsters are real. Everybody would instantly go out and try to be the next Winchesters, and I kind of want to see that. That would be fun. But 
Sadly, we live in the real world where those things don't exist except on TNT at 2 in the afternoon, and that's fine. I figured out a way to make it pretty fun for myself and hopefully a few other people. So there you go, everybody. A truly insane story from beginning to end. Oh, shit. Wait, I'm still possessed. Alex, uh, where are we at with the demon, buddy? Fuck. Oh, uh, he left a little while ago, actually. What? Why didn't you tell me? Yeah, he got tired of you bashing his non-existence for the past 45 minutes and bailed. Awesome. I exercised a demon and didn't even really have to do anything. See that? That's how you handle a possession. Oh, he left a note, though. Oh. Uh, what does it say? It says... Uh, oh. It says, I hope you have plenty of toilet paper. Alex, I don't like that. Me either. I'm still part of this. Okay, everybody. I think it's about time to roll this show up, pun absolutely intended. And if you want to help me out, go do all the important things like ratings and reviews. Fuck it. I might as well lean into it. It's an unavoidable part of content creation. If you want to talk to me, at FunnyBaldWaiter on Instagram. Next week will be another crazy-ass story about something unexplainable, so be sure to come back for that. And until then, I gotta go check on my TP supply. Bye, everybody! Stay kind! Bye.